This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. So last night I was talking about this chant. I wasn't actually talking about this chant, I was talking about um, the forms of Zen practice and um, over the years I'd refrained from doing the traditional before lecture chant and the traditional after lecture chant. It was intentional. May have looked neglectful, but <laughs> um, then I thought we'd see what would it be like to just chant the English part. There's two ways to think. Well, there's many ways to think about these kinds of forms, but here's two I would like to offer you. Like um, there's a yogic involvement, and, and in that case it's probably uh, more appropriate to chant the Japanese and forget the English, you know, uh, that it's not about meaning, it, it's about a body-breath initiation, you know, like each of these, and in that sense, each line is chanted with a single breath. Um, and, and some of these lines are quite long. Look, breathe. Uh, have attention to the breath and the breath in the body. And then it's a monotone, so uh, English has a cadence to it, but Japanese is a monotone. So to kind of shift from the mind that has a natural cadence as it speaks to a monotone requires a shifting out of the habitual way of articulating. And and in that much, the yogic aspect is about shifting consciousness. Uh, and, and then the other, the other way to think about it is um, that facilitates the shift, and I talked about this last night, which is the, the intention to practice, you know. Usually our karmic, our habitual ways of thinking and being creates an agenda, you, you know, which roughly is, I want what I want and I want to avoid what I don't want, in all the wonderful ways that we uh, create that as the person we are. And then it's like, well, how about if I shift that? into a more intentional way of being. And so the chant also 
is an initiation into that intentional way of being. And then in the yogic part, it's like, it's not just an abstract notion, it's like we're creating it. You know, you, usually through the way we're thinking and feeling and imagining and anticipating and remembering, we're sustaining the world according to me. And then the yogic part of awareness is to engage now in a way that it shifts it. And so that chanting in the monotone, chanting with the body breath, is that kind of initiation. And then the meaning, uh, even though in another chant we say the meaning is not in the words, um, the meaning, um, the way the world takes meaning is very potent for us. You know, just before we started our meditation, Jean was saying to me, oh, it's the um, something fools, not the April fools. It's a festival. Festival of fools. It's the festival of fools, you know, and then every now and then, as especially as they change the, the music, it's sort of like... And then the sound in my mind gave rise to the festival of fools, you know. Sometimes it gave rise to, you know, almost like an image. Well, now they're whatever, they're juggling, they're on their unicycles. Didn't go that far, but it had that flavor. Um, the world, our, our mind makes meaning from its input, you know. It hears sounds, it hears music, and it says, oh, that's a festival of fools over there, and they're probably, you know, what are they doing to that? Um, they're on their stilts. They're, uh, two of them are juggling, and the other one's um, climbing around. <laughs> but again, it's the habit of mind, you know. It's like it's all inside the world according to me. And then, uh, can we offer the mind? Well, how, mind, how about you try on this? An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Um, what if these experiences of this moment uh, expressed the preciousness of now? This unique expression of being alive, that's come 
for all the myriad causes. What the heck is that cheer about, you know? How come it's happening right now? You know? This moment is unsurpassed. It, it's utterly unique and completely fully itself. And as such, it conveys this amazing event of the interplay of causes and conditions in creating it just right now. And how we usually say, yeah, 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 but I have things to worry about <laughs> or anticipate or regret or daydream. You know? What is it to intentionally shift out of that mode into now being complete? So the yogic and the intentionality. And then last night we were taking apart intentionality. Um, everything from intending to experience the yogic, the just now. Like there's, there's a wonderful poem by uh, Wallace Stevens, an American poet. It's called The Mind of Winter. And he, he's really talking about the mind of now. And, and the poem ends, and to see nothing that isn't here. To see now just what's here. To see nothing that isn't here. And the nothing that is. You know, when, when, we, when the mental chatter, when all the associated thoughts and conjectures, oh, now they're, you know, they're on their roller skates or they're putting on their clown's costumes, you know, it's like, to see nothing that isn't here, when all the clutter is let go, and, 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 the, and the chatter of me recreating the world according to me starts to quiet, the vibrancy of now comes forth. to intend that, okay, I'll just chant this shift consciousness in that way, and then I'll listen to the Dharma talk. Or I'll drink a cup of tea. Or I'll stand at the bus stop. Or I'll say hello to the bin man. Or pet the dog. even notice the workings of me. 
in that intentionality um, there's something being asked of us you know recently I was reading uh, a talk by Suzuki Roshi the founder of San Francisco Zen Center and he was quoting Dogen Zenji the founder of Soto Zen in Japan in, and who was saying um, when we hear the Dharma it sounds like something is being imposed on us no. the Dharma is saying this is it and it's sort of saying and all that chatter that's going on unrelentingly in your mind and emotions is in a way extra in a, in a way um, what is it to not be so caught up in it it asks something of us Do we uh, in a week's time we're going to do an initiation ceremony? You know, so the, you can have an initiation which is an exhale. You can have an initiation which is um, a four-line chant. You can have an initiation where you uh, give up who you are, what you have, and leave the world according that you've been accustomed to and enter the world again. I was talking to a couple of monks from Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition yesterday at lunchtime, and one of them was telling me in their tradition they never stay anywhere, well maybe not never, but usually they, they're moved every two or three years. You know, you're two or three years here and then, oh, now we're going to take you from there and we're going to move you over to this place. And, and then in between, oh, you're going to stop doing that and you're going to start doing this. And I thought, oh, how interesting, because in our monastery at Tassajara, uh, most of the jobs rotate every three months, you know, and it's kind of fun, you know. The 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 the, the most I find the most entertaining way to do it was to not know what you were going to get next, you know. And then somebody reads out your name, and then they say, the baker or the plumber, you know, and you think, hmm. I've never baked before. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> no. And the shift is an initiation, you know? Okay. And then you go and you get initiated into the world of being the baker. And then three months later, 
or sometimes you know, it's six months, um, you get another job. And uh, every day you wake up, it's a new day. When you change from this to that, I did a shashin once with uh, Harada Shodo Roshi, a prominent Rinzai teacher. And all I can remember from the shashin, what it affected me profoundly, was right at the end, he sent his assistant saying he wanted to talk to me. And I went to his room and he was doing calligraphy. And I knew he knew I, he heard me come in. So I just stand there silently, and he did the calligraphy. And then he finished, he put on the brush, and then he turned to face me. And it was like, he was 100% doing calligraphy, and then he was 100% facing me, you know. That's the lesson I got from that machine. What was the subject matter? Ah, some Zen thing. But <laughs> just that each thing itself, each thing you do it. What is it that's asked of us from practice? And, and then in that ceremony we're going to do in a week. it's turned into a series of questions. Like, will you, even after attaining Buddhahood, continually practice this? And then the initiates, the, the people who are being ordained, they say, yes, I will. And it's a kind of a reckless thing to say, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> Who the heck knows what you're going to do? <laughs> you know, if you do it another way, we could say, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> Once with a whole other teacher, I was talking to him, and he said to me, in, in, we were in the in, we were having a one-on-one -on -one interview, and we were in this intense exchange. And he said to me, "Will you do this?" I don't ask me why. I knew the answer you're supposed to say was yes, I will. And I said, "I'll try." And I could tell from the look on his face, it was like. That wasn't the right answer. <laughs> and he said to me again, will you do this? And I said, I'll try. You know? And it, it, it reminded me of being in school. You know? I, I was taught, I had the good fortune and the misfortune to be taught by Christian brothers. And usually about that point, You'd get a swift blow across the side of the head. 
it, it, it occurred to me that the same kind of stubbornness that I had when I was like 11, you know, where I think, I know it's coming, but <laughs> I'll just take the blow. What was going on for me was in that moment I thought, I, I can't bullshit about this. I can't just give the answer I'm supposed to give. The answer that's most real for me is, I'll try. No. And uh, sort of like, what, what else can you do except be yourself? No. I mean, even if the whole world joins in a big chorus and says, stop being yourself, like, <laughs> you can't. And so I would say, it's a great question to ask yourself, what does practice ask of me? And usually, if you settle into it, you kind of scare yourself, you know? Because something in us knows that, uh, like, really do it. Don't just sort of say, oh, I'll say whatever, whatever's expected of me in the moment. Or I'll say it, but I'm not that invested in it, you know. Um, what does practice ask of you? Does it ask you to submit The term self-sacrifice, you know, it's, it's a very interesting term because sacrifice comes from or come at the same root as sacred, you know? So to make the self sacred, and you know, sacred, everything is sacred, everything's an unsurpassed version of itself. This moment is a version of itself that can't be improved upon. This moment offers us the vibrancy of being. It, it, it offers us a way to initiate being that's more than just our habituated engagement. The, the, the now of this moment, the energy of this moment, offers us an initiation into awakening. And it's interesting because usually when we talk about self-sacrifice, it, it, it has almost a, it has a, one side of it is um, 
the self is diminished I'll, I'll be self-sacrificing and I will do that I will forgo nurturing the self and do that but another way of thinking about it is this awakening this making sacred the workings of being the self becomes part of the collective self and the saying yes I will it um, it's a commitment and it's a um, an act of discipline you know discipline comes from disciple and the disciple follows the way you know it, it, it's a um, an intentional willing engagement the image that's used in Zen it's like it's called fishing with a straight hook you know usually the hook catches the fish and the fish has no choice but to be caught now if the hook is just a piece of straight metal the fish has to bite it and keep biting it and hold on to it to be caught that kind of engagement we're inviting now to hook us and lift this into nothing that isn't here and the nothing that is and this what is being asked of us in, in Zen speak it's a koan it can stimulate our curiosity it can then stimulate our inquiry it can it's it, it invites us to experience and discover it, it invites and stimulates that capacity of engagement which in some ways stands in contrast to the mind that figures it out separates and conceptualizes oh that means such and such making sacred
cultivating discipline, committing. Initiating the inquiry. Well, what then? What is it to do that? What is it to be that? What is it to actualize that? Not just have it be uh, engaging idea, but to actually in, an engaging idea as just thinking, but an engaging idea that turns into engagement. What is it to do that? And then it does a beautiful, it, it stimulates a beautiful way of being, you know, which uh, in Zen we call original mind. You know, the word original, you know, it has, you know, origin and it has originality. We, we get in touch with the source of being. Not as like an archaeological dig, but the source of being that's vibrant in every moment. The source of being that we touch when we do what we're doing. There's a poem by Seamus Heaney where he talks about his father doing what he was doing as he was digging up potatoes. And he was marveling at how well he handled a shovel, how the craft of his shoveling and digging up the potatoes. And then he was musing on himself and saying, and my pen is my shovel, you know? This is how I do what I do, you know? And it's as honorable as my father digging. And then his father before him digging the turf. You know? He was... So, in doing what we're doing, we, we touch, we engage the origin. You know? It's like when a moment touches us and stills us and uh, it's almost like we can taste the gravitas of being alive. I think of, you know, the image that comes to mind, I, th I remember when my sister died and we were all there at the hospital and, and watching her husband trembled with grief, the intense emotion of loss and sadness and confusion and fear. Just 
in, in the tender beauty of his fragility in that moment. The origin of our connectedness. It, and the, the knowing that we couldn't save him from it. You know? There's no clever words you can say to say, oh, in actually the foolishness to even think that anything other than that being just itself. that kind of origin in how often it is moments like that that draw us reluctantly into it. You know? And our practices sink, Zen practices sink, you know, well, every moment's offering you inviting you. And maybe, as Dogen was uh, musing on, maybe even demanding of you. Be now. And, and as we explore that, you, you know, we see, well, even if you're trembling, in the fragility of your own poignant and painful emotions. That's it. And then originality. You know, that, uh, the nowness and the origin they have an energy. You know? After, so Wally was trembling and sobbing, and his brother Joe hugged him. You know, and the, the exquisite uh, tenderness. You know. Can words, what can words offer us in those moments? And Joe can be, as is called in beautiful Belfast, a hard man, you know. Uh, but in that moment, just this kind of tender, loving, compassionate hug. What does practice ask of us? No. And maybe the disservice we can do ourselves in responding 
it's, it's to kind of uh, assume that it's trying to limit us or, or lessen the vitality and the vibrancy of our being. should be good and say my Zen prayers. Uh, well, may, maybe you should, but if somehow you're interpreting that as uh, some kind of dissipation of the magnificence of being alive. Um, Maybe you should look again at what it is to say, yes, I will. And to think, was, did Job plan that? Did, did he sit at home and think, well, if Wally trembles with fear and grief, I'm going to walk up in front of everybody and give them a hug. I don't think so. I think it had that originality, you know. That that self-sacrifice, that making the self sacred and hugging his brother. Someone gave me a book of poetry yesterday, and it's called, I'm Sorry for Your Troubles. And that word, trouble, yeah, it comes from an old Gaelic word, troubled, which um, is that which is difficult. Then this this other reflection that in our originality, how do we continually recreate life? You know? And we can feel it. You know, sometimes if you pay attention and you're listening to one of your old stories, usually one of your old complaints, uh, you can sort of feel like you're boring yourself, you know, in a, and often in a painful way. But you've heard this story before, you know the ending. <laughs> And, and it doesn't have uh, 
it doesn't have the aliveness and when you're out there making it up as you go along and not quite sure where you're getting where you're going to and what's going to happen And that's the scary part. It, the nature of is, of originality is there isn't a guarantee. <laughs> you know? There's no guarantee this is all going to work out fine, you know. No, this is you going out there and, and engaging and discovering. And it will happen the way it happens. Yes, I will. Um, once, uh, no, there used to be a famous uh, Tibetan teacher, Chogram Trumpa, who was one heck of a character. Uh, but once he gave, and he was very popular in the 70s, and he gave a talk, and he, he was addressing the group, it was addressing a group of about two or three thousand. And he said, you know, if you haven't, if you haven't engaged spiritual practice, I want you to really consider it before you do. Because it's kind of dangerous. And here's how it's dangerous. Because the more you do it, the more you get it, like, that this is really a very authentic way to live. But it's just not easy. You know? it, it, will, it will do this sort of stuff to you. It'll say, you know, like, do it. Don't, don't just uh, read it for five minutes before you go to sleep at night. Uh, go out there and live it and be it. And it puts you into the engagement of being alive and it's hard to know where all that's going to end up. And as you do it, and as you taste that authenticity, as you taste that aliveness, um, it's hard to settle for anything less. You know? So we chant a few lines and we uh, create a new life. And we like to think that we own that life and we're running it, but actually in that self-sacrifice there's a giving over. But in the originality, there's an empowerment.
in the end of uh, another poem by Shemasini, The Monks of Clonmacnoise. It's, it's, it's kind of a mythical image, but this person stumbles into it. And the abbot says, let's help him get out of it quickly because he might be overcome by its magnificence. Maybe to say that we can think these kind of thoughts and think, oh yeah, for sure I'm going to do that. For me, sometimes uh, my answer is, I'll try. And even if other people don't like it, <laughs> so in in asking, uh, what does practice ask of me? I'd I'd, I'd say. Live by your own answer, you know. Differentiate between that and like, well, this is what other people are expecting me to say, you know. There's something very personal about it. Mother Teresa was known to say, I'm married to Jesus and it's a difficult relationship. <laughs> and then when she died and people read her diary, they were shocked by the things she wrote in it. You know? It really was a difficult relationship. She wasn't just kind of putting that out there for show. There were times she was racked with self-doubt. think of her as this kind of tiny, immense force, fearlessly taking care of hundreds of people discarded by society. What does practice ask of me?